I'm Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Thanks so much for being here. So COVID killed live events, but we're trying to make a comeback. I mean, this is a pretty good crowd. We're not back to peak. We're not back to peak, but we'll get there. We'll have this room filled before long. And uh, if Cato killed, li I mean, if uh, COVID killed live events, at least it killed neckties too. So I'm very thankful for that. Tomorrow is, tomorrow is Thomas Jefferson's 279th birthday. And uh, I was wishing that this event were tomorrow because then I could riff on Jefferson's birthday for a while. But that gave me an idea. Just, I have the internet in my pocket. Let's do a search, figure out what famous historical figure was born today. And uh, David Cassidy of the Partridge family. So next time we'll shoot for the 13th. It's great for our community to be coming back together. We're so appreciative of your participation. We're especially appreciative to all of you who generously support Cato. You know, I often say that Cato's currency are ideas, influence, and impact. And ideas are really so important. And there are so many ideas that come out of the Cato Institute, but maybe the most important idea that we defend is the idea that when we carve out the greatest space possible for civil society, and uh, as David Bowes often says, I hope I'm not stealing any of his lines, if we take the Smokey the Bear approach to government, keep it small, keep it contained, and keep an eye on it. If we do those things, we believe that we all live the most prosperous lives possible, lives of meaning and satisfaction and contentment, in harmony with other people in society, and to the greatest extent possible in harmony with other nations. We truly believe that there are all kinds of unintended consequences to well-intentioned government interventions. The government interventions that in response to higher education becoming less affordable have made higher education even less affordable. Interventions to address the high cost of healthcare have made healthcare more expensive and less accessible. And heaven knows all these interventions overseas to defend the security of our country, we believe have made our country less secure while causing untold devastation to, uh, to hundreds of thousands of civilians and thousands of our men and women in, in the service. There are other ideas we defend too. One of the things that we really like to do is make sure that we focus on areas of common ground and shared values, the things that all Americans, regardless of philosophy or ideology, should care deeply about. We've spent a lot of time trying to convince people that whatever your point of view on policy is, we have a great stake in the preservation of the rule of law and a great stake in the preservation of the foundations of our system of government. And both the rule of law and the foundations of our system have been under bipartisan attack from both sides. So this is obviously a mission that Cato takes very seriously. And one that I've told you before, our programs with educators is one area where we try to focus on the shared stake we all have in the restoration of our civic culture. And I went down to get my phone because I, I see my friends from St. Luke's School here. 
And I got a great email last night from my colleague, uh, Alan Carey. Alan and Karen Rossiter were up at St. Luke's yesterday. And uh, Alan sent me an update. Peter and Leslie just wrapped up a great event with St. Luke's, truly an impressive organization with top-notch students and faculty. We led a packed house this morning of about 100 teachers talking about civil discourse and then student-led debates for the upper and middle schools. Really looking forward to continuing the partnership. So again, I think a great example of, uh, regardless of our different points of view and different ideologies, the, uh, the important common interests we have in preserving the rule of law, uh, our civic culture, and the foundations of our system. And we couldn't do any of this without your generous support. Um, the response of our donors over the last two years has been truly tremendous. Uh, we've gotten so much positive feedback, a sense of urgency on what's going on in our country that I think is motivating people to be very generous, but also so many votes of confidence in the strategic direction of our organization and the things we're achieving. And none of it, of course, could be possible without your generosity. And that's enough for me. Let's turn to the program now. I'm going to introduce my colleague, David Bowes. David uh, is one of the leading lights of the libertarian movement. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to be having uh, one of our annual, our annual staff get-together where we honor people who are marking a milestone in their tenure at Cato. Anyone who's been here for an even number of years, a, a number of years divisible by five, five years, 10 years, 15 years, and uh, we're gonna get way up there on Thursday because David is gonna be honored for the 40 years that he's dedicated to Cato and, uh, and making Cato uh, truly one of the motherships of, uh, of the Liberty Movement. Uh, David has been... It's actually pretty easy to, uh, to introduce David because I call him our Chief Quality Officer. For four decades, Cato has, has kept Cato 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 principled and, and, and Cato sharp, and we all owe him a very important uh, debt in that. I think the most important role he's played is keeping Cato principled. Uh, I've never told this story in public before because we don't like to talk about other organizations, but uh, I can't resist because I don't think it's pejorative anyway towards these organizations. I was asked by the president of Politico to speak to a club that she's a member of. And someone came up to me afterwards as a woman. She said, you know, I spent 16 years on Capitol Hill. The last few years, I was a general counsel to John Boehner while I was Speaker of the House. And I just want to say something to you. I always told people when I worked on the Hill, when I want to know what the left thinks, I read Brookings. And when I want to know what the right thinks, I read Heritage. But when I want to know the truth, I read Cato. And that wouldn't be true without the years of dedication of David Bose. Thank you, Peter. That's very generous. Um, you all know the rule. The CEO can wear whatever he wants to. Uh, the rest of us figure we should dress up for formal events, although we have not done this much in the last couple of years. We haven't been to many public events, and in the office we are definitely uh, using a more relaxed, relaxed standard, and it's going to be interesting to see whether that relaxed standard is now permanent from now on. It's great to be back in New York, which I haven't been in in more than two years. I'm glad to have an opportunity to be here. Of course, uh, as I have been saying, it's nice to be anywhere outside of my third floor home office. Um, I have been back at the office for 
almost a year now, um, many of my colleagues discovered that they really liked not commuting. And so we've been dealing with this issue at Cato, and so has, I gather, every other business. I read just yesterday an article about Apple and Google trying to get their employees to come back to the office. And if they're having trouble, um, and they're, but they want it to happen, then I assume lots of employers want it to happen but are having trouble. So the good thing for me, since I have been going to the office, is the commute has been really easy. Um, and yet, as I drive in and I'm thinking, oh, this is a nice, easy commute, I'm also thinking it's outrageous to be paying all these federal employees who aren't even showing up to work. And then I think, well, no, maybe it's better if they don't show up to work. <laughs> but then I realize that, unfortunately, all the great tech companies in uh, Silicon Valley and elsewhere, funded by New York and, and elsewhere, um, have made it possible for the bureaucrats to write regulations and laws and uh, rules and interpretations whether they go to the office or not. So it's not really doing any good. Um, it's great to see so many of our old friends here, especially our sponsors, um, especially some longtime sponsors whom we really appreciate. It's also good that I see a lot of new people and young people here. Um, that maybe never went to a Cato event before, especially since we haven't had one much uh, for a couple of years. So it's, glad, it's, it's great to see you. Um, as Peter said, this is a smaller turnout than we used to get in New York, which is what we're finding when we go around the country now. But it's a pretty good turnout, considering that a lot of people do still worry about being in an enclosed space with other people. Um, and also, I think one of the things that's happening in Washington is we're getting very low turnouts for in-person events, book forums, debates, and things because a lot of people, I think, are not going to, um, just not going to the office, and therefore they're not going to come across town to go to a lunch speech or anything because they're not coming to the office at all. And in fact, I saw a friend of mine on Twitter last night tweet uh, around 5 or 6 o'clock, I'm supposed to be at a reception right now with Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, but my porch is very comfortable and I'd probably have to get dressed. <laughs> so I think that a lot of people are tuning in to watch events at Cato in you know, very large numbers, more than we ever got in the Hayek Auditorium, hundreds of people, even thousands of people sometimes, tuning in for an event. So that's been... That's been one of the upsides of the pandemic for us, is finding these new online audiences. But when we get together like this, one of the things we think about is, why do we do this? Why are we here together? And there are reasons, like, because we haven't seen old friends in a long time, and because we wanted to come to New York, at least in our case, and try a new restaurant. Um, but it's also, and more fundamentally, because we love freedom. That's why we're here. And freedom is a big idea developed by great thinkers over many years who didn't always agree uh, about exactly what it meant. We can measure freedom in reports like the Human Freedom Index and Freedom in the 50 States. Just published a new edition of Freedom in the 50 States. And I gotta tell you, y'all need to step up your game. 
New York did not do well on the Freedom in the 50 States report. I was in Texas a couple of weeks ago and I told them, y'all did okay on economic freedom, not so good on personal freedom, you need to work on it. So I checked New York, y'all are 50th in both economic freedom and personal freedom. So you really need to work on it and you don't get a lot of benefit by moving to Connecticut or New Jersey according to this report. So we can measure it that way and there can be a lot of arguments about the measurements, but freedom is also something people feel in their bones. Every one of us, whether we ever did this or not, knows what it felt like to cross through the Berlin Wall from freedom to unfreedom or from unfreedom to freedom. Freedom means respecting the moral autonomy of each person, seeing each person as the owner of his or her own life, each person free to make the important decisions about his life, to think, to speak, to write, to create, to marry, to eat and drink and smoke, to associate with others as we choose. Freedom is the foundation of our ability to construct our lives as we see fit. And over the past 300 years, we libertarians, we classical liberals, have made great strides toward a free, just, peaceful, and prosperous society. The great scholar Deirdre McCloskey, who just spent a month in residence with us at Cato, writes in her books, uh, starting with bourgeois virtues, about what she calls the great enrichment. And what she means is, we expect economic growth every year. We throw out presidents and governors who we think are not delivering economic growth every year. But that's not the natural condition of mankind. There's a chart called the hockey stick chart, and it's standard of living or GDP per capita or however you look at it throughout human history. And this is what it looks like. It looks like this for 100,000 years. And then around 1700, it does this. And that's in Northwestern Europe and then America. In China, it goes for about another 200 years and then it turns up. So something happened around 300 years ago and Deirdre McCloskey calls it the great enrichment and she wrote books on what it was that happened. But one of the lines she had that I really liked was she says, the great enrichment is the most important fact in human history. More important than the rise and fall of empires, more important than the class struggle, more important than the change in the role of women. This is the great, sometimes she calls it the great fact with a capital G and a capital F. The great fact of human history is that we went from bare subsistence and nothing ever changed to the incredible growth, 30-fold, 100-fold, it's hard to measure. How much richer am I than my ancestors who left Scotland around 1720? Well, they lived in thatched huts with the animals inside the house for warmth. I do not. Um, that's the change. But nothing is guaranteed. And to some extent, we become so used to comfort and convenience and constant growth that 
we forget how it happened. We don't think it matters how we preserve it. And that's why these days, ideas we thought were dead are back. Socialism, protectionism, industrial policy, ethnic nationalism, anti-Semitism, religious and cultural wars, threats from both right and left, both internationally and domestically. They're talking about a race, a presidential election in France that is too close to call between a sort of centrist, business-oriented social democrat and a woman who represents a party that was started by ex-fascists. That shouldn't be a close election, and yet maybe it is. And that's not the only country where we're seeing these kinds of problems. Of course, sometimes it's worse than having a conflict between a centrist and a proto-fascist. In Ian Vasquez's home of Peru, they had a choice between basically a communist and the daughter of a fascist dictator. Um, and they narrowly chose the communist, um, who's now doing such a bad job that even the non-communist leftists are giving up on him. Um, and they actually turn presidents out fairly frequently in Peru, so maybe they'll get rid of him. Anyway, the threats from both right and left are why Cato's job is not done and will probably never be done. Cato's mission remains what it has been for 45 years, to preserve and defend individual rights, limited government, free markets, and peace. And Peter did steal my line about Smokey the Bear, which is not original with me, so I can't claim, I, I can't claim the theft, but it's worth repeating. Smokey the Bear's rules, those of you who are my age remember seeing these on TV all the time when you were a kid, Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety also apply to government. Keep it small, that's what the Constitution was intended to do. Keep it in a confined area, that's what Article 1, Section 8 tried to do. And keep an eye on it, and that's what we do. That's what all of us need to do. How do we do that? What do we do? Well, I could obviously give you a litany of books and studies and seminars and TV appearances and congressional testimony and so on, but you know about that. We send you newsletters about it. So I want to sort of describe some of the things that aren't so obvious. For instance, we give academics a platform to reach a wider audience. One of my classic Examples of this is George Selgin, who joined us about 10 years ago out of the University of Georgia, where he was a respected monetary economist. But when he came to Cato and set up the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, he had <clears throat> a less intense audience. There weren't 30 people an hour forced to listen to him, but there were a lot more people able to listen to him. And within a couple of years, a top Wall Street Journal reporter was saying, you know, if you wanted some new thinking on the Federal Reserve Board, you might put George Selgin on it. Um, that's, the, that's the platform we can give to people with good ideas. We've created a platform that automatically makes our scholars uh, participants in the national policy debate. Sometimes journalists don't know who our scholar is. They just call Cato and say, do you have someone I can talk to about whatever? Um, we try to be careful about that. I was asked to go on a national television network this morning to talk about safe investments in an impending recession era. I told them, 
look, I know a little about what government shouldn't do to cause recessions, but I have no expertise in what safe investments are in a recession. Get an expert. Um, but often we do have an expert, and even somebody who's just joined Cato this week can then get on television, get interviewed by an editorial board because we've created that platform because of your support. In that way, we get libertarian ideas into the national media. And sometimes you see that. You see an op-ed from, 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 from Cato in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You see a Cato person appearing on cable television or occasionally even on the broadcast news, which more people actually still watch than the cable news shows, although the gap has narrowed. Um, but there are also times that you don't realize that we got libertarian ideas into the national media. Like when an editorial writer talks to one of our scholars and then writes an editorial that is better than it would have been, um, even though we don't get named. That can also happen with people who write the op-ed columns and so on. Or when we give an idea to a regular reporter who goes out and investigates something that he hadn't thought about investigating. Um, so in all of those ways, we sometimes know that we're getting ideas and, and you know, hopefully we send those around. Hey, I talked to this reporter and look the story he's written now. Um, we give people the courage to do what they know is right. Sometimes I hope the work we do persuades somebody that industrial policy is a bad idea, that a tax cut would help the economy, that we should stay out of whatever the next war is that people are pushing. But sometimes I believe people already know, and I'm talking about people in prominent positions, people already know that what Cato believes is right, but it's when they see us talking about it that they say, hey, if this serious Washington think tank can talk about this, so can I. One example of this 15, 20 years ago was when the mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, and the governor of New Mexico, Gary Johnson, separately, at a few years apart, said that the drug war wasn't working and we ought to try decriminalizing or legalizing a lot of drugs. And one one thing that I think was true of both of them is these were smart, experienced guys. We didn't persuade them this was a good idea. They sort of knew that, but I do believe it's when Kurt Schmoke, the mayor, saw my op-ed in the New York Times saying let's end the drug war that he thought, I think I'll give a speech about this, and he did. And then Gary Johnson also, who was a closer reader of uh, Cato and Reason Magazine and things like that also decided that he could talk about that. We put big ideas on the table, ideas that probably wouldn't be part of the national debate otherwise. What ideas? Well, the idea of enumerated powers. I mentioned Article 1, Section 8. We tell people the Constitution only grants certain powers to the federal government. It is not a general grant of total parliamentary authority. The Solicitor General of the Clinton administration did tell the Supreme Court Congress has plenary power. You know what plenary means? It means full. It means Congress can pass any law it wants to. The Supreme Court said no. It can't, but that was a new thing for the Supreme Court and we, I believe, had prepared the ground by talking about 
delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And that's what we got at that point from the Supreme Court, a reminder that there are limits on, power, on the power of the federal government. The war on drugs, again, a topic that not many people were talking about. It was just a thing. Drugs are bad and that's why they're illegal. We arrest people for it. We talked about the costs of prohibition and whether they might be greater than the costs of drug abuse. Um, and we, we got that on the national agenda, along with other people, of course. And now, finally, slowly, a lot of states are starting to lift their bans on marijuana. Unfortunately, in most cases, they're doing it so badly that they're creating such regulated and taxed systems. I read just the other day, California legalized marijuana and people are still buying 75% of it illegally. What the hell do you have to do to a legal market to make 75% of the customers stick to the illegal market where they could actually get arrested for buying it? Um, that's, California is your competition for worst economic policy, New York. Um, Health savings accounts, the idea that instead of just your employer putting money into uh, a, a, a health insurance uh, a plan for you, you should have money that you could use to pay for your own health care, including catastrophic insurance. We published a book on that, Patient Power, back just before Hillary Clinton came up with an alternative idea. And that year we distributed 300,000 copies of that book in opposition to Hillary's plan, proposing a better plan, which actually did get passed. And your business could have a health, a, a health savings account. Cato has health savings accounts. That means we get money in an account uh, as part of our compensation and we have catastrophic insurance for anything that exceeds that amount. People can do that. Reigning in presidential powers, this has been an issue we've been interested in for a long time. The Constitution does not make the president the boss of me. It does not make him the commander-in-chief of the US, the US economy. People say, we're electing a new commander-in-chief. Well, of the military, yes, but the commander-in-chief of the economy or the country, he is not. And too many presidents think, I've got a pen and I've got a phone and I'll just pass some laws, especially when they discover Congress won't pass the laws they want. And for three decades we've been talking, especially to members of Congress. Madison said the different branches will be jealous of their powers. The president will not get out of line because Congress will be jealous of its own legislative power. And we remind congressional majorities, minorities, that they should be concerned about this. And the big problem that we discover is the party that isn't the president's party is receptive to this idea. And then when, they, when, their, when their guy gets into the presidency, then they cease being interested in it. And we, we constantly tell people on both sides, you know, your party's not going to hold the White House forever. One of these days, Hillary Clinton's going to get elected, or Donald Trump's going to get elected. Wouldn't you like that person not to have all that power? And they sort of understand that in theory, but they can't bring themselves to limit the president's power. And of course, there's a bit of a problem that if Congress did pass a law limiting the president's power, the president would veto it. And Madison's theory was, but Congress as an institution will override that abuse of, of presidential power, and that, unfortunately, we've had trouble with. 
One last issue that I will mention, um, Social Security. We published a book 40 years ago saying Social Security was never set up on a, um, a solvent basis. It's always heading for insolvency. Here's a plan, private accounts, save money in an IRA type uh, account, and when you turn 65 or 62 or whatever age you might choose, you will not just be dependent on the government for $1,300 a month or whatever it is, but you will have your own account. You can decide how much to take out per month, how much to, how much to leave to your kids. How many working class people have a million dollars to leave to their kids? But they would if, if Congress had adopted our plan 40 years ago, working class people would be retiring today with million dollar accounts, some of which at least they would be able to leave to their children, which would help to end the cycle of poverty. One of the things about this is it demonstrates our commitment to good ideas, to good policy changes, not just for a day, not a month, not just a year, but decades of studies and research and advocacy and conferences and dinners on Capitol Hill talking about this kind of reform, which we have not succeeded in yet because one thing Cato has done over the years is pick big targets, the public school monopoly, the social security system, the global interventionist foreign policy. The number one way the Cato Institute helps change the world is to change, to create a presence for libertarian ideas in Washington and the national debate. Not a big enough presence yet, but a presence that wouldn't be there. We have created a major consistent voice on behalf of individual liberty and limited government in the national media. And I see people all the time in Washington calling me up saying, I know you guys will have a different point of view on this. Or even at an event like this in Washington, a speaker starting to propose a bad idea and seeing me or one of my colleagues and saying, okay, I know the Cato Institute's not gonna like this, but I'm proposing national service for every 18 year old or something like that. So at least they are reminded that there's some large number of Americans who don't like these schemes. The founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause of American freedom. Fortunately, we don't have to do that. But we do have to do what we do because freedom isn't free. It must be defended in every generation. And that's why we're here today and why my colleagues are in the office, or at least on the job, every day. Thank you very much. Now, I believe we might have a few minutes for questions, and we have some microphones in various parts of the audience. So, do we have any questions? I see one there. Get you a new microphone. Six. 
Aha. <laughs> it works. Uh, I'm Jim Whiteley. Uh, I have a question. You know, we all know the watchwords of Cato, peace and uh, limited government, uh, free markets, and individual liberty. Um, I was thinking also, individual liberty is one thing, but what about personal responsibility? Could you um, address that? As part of, um, you know, the, the individuals is, con is, is able to take care, take advantage of liberty, but what are the responsibilities of, the, of an individual in, in limited government? Well, yes, I mean, I think in that sense, rights and responsibilities go together. A lot of times when people say rights and responsibilities go together, what they're trying to get at is you owe something to the society. I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think it is that because you have a right, you have the responsibility to run your own life and to respect the rights of other people. So one of the ways, when I, when I did my book, The Libertarian Mind, I did a lot of radio interviews about it, and people would say, what is libertarianism? And I would say, libertarianism is the idea that every adult individual has the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about his own life. And then I would talk about, because everybody agrees with that, right? And then I would talk about the ways government does not allow us to make our own decisions. They don't allow us to keep our money and spend it as we would choose. They don't allow us to decide where our kids will go to school. At the time I published the book, they didn't allow everybody to marry the, the person of their choice. But I would go through it and say every word in that is important. It's about adults. Children don't have the same rights. It's about individuals because individuals have autonomy and they make choices. It's about your right to do as you please, but your responsibility then for your own life. And if you make bad choices, then you may end up with bad consequences. And that feedback mechanism, as well as the various systems of parents and ministers and teachers imparting to children the wisdom to make good choices rather than simply making mistakes. As a species, we make lots of mistakes and we learn. You hope your children won't have to make each of those mistakes in order to learn. So yes, we absolutely consider that responsibility is a correlate of rights. Thank you. As a, as a policy wonk, I'm very interested in that social security issue. And from 40 years ago, I was deep in that debate with you guys, and it was great. But it's now 40 years later. Everything is worse. Um, we're getting close to within single-digit number of years that it's going to be over. What um, Does Cato have a way to try to deal with it now? Well, we continue to have an interest in it, but we have found that it is very difficult to get Congress interested in this. There were some members of Congress interested back in the uh, 80s, uh, the 90s. Even President Clinton supposedly looked at the Chilean plan and was interested in it. He was, like you, a policy wonk, and so he did actually have an interest. You could imagine him, more than most of our presidents, actually reading serious magazines and tearing things out. There was a governor, a Democratic governor, who reported somewhere that 
he stayed up late at night talking to Clinton in the White House, and one of the things they talked about was Social Security, and it's got a problem, we're going to have to fix it, and the Chilean plan, what do you think of that? And he said the next morning, under his White House bedroom door, someone had slipped information about the Chilean plan. Um, so we did talk about that. We, got, we, had, we did have dinners on Capitol Hill. Um, there were people, Lindsey Graham was enthusiastic about it back then. Lately, Lindsey Graham doesn't show much enthusiasm for actual reform. So it's a real challenge, and we have focused more on other issues uh, more recently. For instance, Michael Tanner, who was our main Social Security person, recently did a big project on fixing California. California is the richest state in the country and also has the highest poverty rate. What's up with that? Um, homelessness, housing, <clears throat> inequality in California. Uh, he was working on that. So yes, we're still very interested. The books are there, um, but we've been focusing on other things because Congress refuses to focus on this problem. Right here. Thank you. Um, I think that administrative law has metastasized into a nightmare. Uh, looking for Congress for relief, I think, is almost unrealistic, as Congress seems happy to delegate that responsibility. Blah, blah, blah. What are your views? Well, I agree with that. Administrative law, the, 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 um, the thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats who can issue regulations, interpretations, letters, um, without any congressional authorization, except a congressional authorization that says make the air clean and sets up an EPA and tells them to do it. I think that's a real problem. We hired a scholar a couple of years ago, Will Yateman, who is focused on that. Um, and you're right, it's very hard to get Congress to do something about this. There are proposals, the RAINS Act and a few things like that. They have not passed. And this, is, this seems like the flaw in the Madisonian system. It turns out every member of Congress is more interested in his own campaign fund and his own reelection than he is in the constitutional prerogatives and obligations of Congress as a branch. The courts are another way to try to rein this in, and I think there might be more opportunity for that now. Conservative judges are better on some things, worse on some other things, but administrative law is one where I expect that some of the new justices will take an interest, and Will has been filing amicus briefs in cases that are coming up to the Supreme Court. So yes, I hope that that will be a possibility. I remember being shocked back during the Obama administration when somebody like the acting deputy assistant attorney general for civil rights issues in the Department of Education issued a letter instructing 17,000 local school districts what their policies on transgender issues and bathrooms should be. It's a fraught issue. There should be some civil discussion of it, talk about something that needs civil discourse. But the idea that this one person who's an acting deputy something can just, in effect, pass a law for 17,000 local school districts, I would like to see that reined in. Maybe one more question right here. Okay, no more questions. Sorry, the bureaucracy has spoken. Thank you all. <laughs>